you cannot stop change. You can influence the way we change. You can influence how we change, but you cannot stop change. Cultures that stop changing die. It's a Mediterranean power. It's a Southern European power, but it's neither East nor West. We don't need to be either East or West. We are both. Turns out the Catholic chaplain of Macquarie University was one of Yikos' descendants. And he knew about, you know, great, 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 whatever, granddad uh, was this Greek pirate, blah, blah, and I just, my, my jaw fell on the floor. Today on The Cave, we've got Dr. Panayotis Yamadis, born and raised in Sydney. He's an academic who spent much of his life, or at least from 1988, researching, lecturing and publishing about uh, Hellenism, particularly in Sydney. Well, first of all, welcome, Panayoti, to The Cave. Uh, thank you for being with us. Thank you for the invitation. No problems. You, you, one of your foci, and this is something that interests me very much, and uh, we'll, we'll, throw it, we'll go directly into it, is you've done a lot of work on what you call the genocides of indigenous Hellenes, Armenians and Assyrians in Anatolia and eastern Thrace. For our listeners, I guess that's modern Turkey. Is that what we're talking about? That's the geographic space, yes. Take me through it a little bit. Look, we, we, I mean, as a Hellene, of course, I hear lots of times about the genocide of Armenians, the so-called I'll say so-called, and I'll put that in context, the so-called genocide of Hellenes and others uh, in that period. And we know a lot about post-war migration to Australia, the Civil War, but I don't know that I specifically, rather non-Greeks, know as much about what you call the genocides. Take me, Give me a little brief recount. What periods are we talking about and what are the numbers and what were the history behind some of these things in, in, a, in lay terms? In lay terms, as you said, the genocide of the Armenians is quite well known. We're talking about exactly the same time period, exactly the same geographic area, and exactly the same perpetrators. The Ottoman state and the Republican Turkish state, which was its successor from 1920 onwards. So the, the whole period we're talking about is about 1914 to about 1924. There are some new studies which we can talk about later uh, which pushed the start date back to the 1890s. And some, including myself, who don't really think that the genocide has even finished. I, I personally consider the recent war in Artsakh a continuation of that genocide, genocidal process. The, I was saying the current war that's going on now in Armenia, you're saying is still part of the process of, process of genocide of Armenians. Is that right? That's quite correct. So my opinion, and I'm quite happy to elaborate as to why. Please, please do, please do. You, you got the. I should go back. Um, in terms of numbers, we really are not sure. Very, very ballpark because, as we know, the census data that we have from the period is very patchy. We have to rely on a combination of the official census data from the Ottoman state, the last census of course, being in 1913, the next one not being until the late 1920s. So there is a almost 15-year gap with no census. Um, the church figures, which are again unreliable for various 
sociological reasons. So ballpark, we're talking about the disappearance either through death or through uh, assimilation, forced assimilation of about a million Hellenes in that 10-year period. Can, can I ask you, why, why was this? I mean, from my understanding as uh, someone who's looked at the area in the past, uh, the Ottoman Empire under the Millets, under the way of dealing, was fairly broadly fair to the Hellenes living in the area. So what what is it that tipped that balance to them to become, uh, to start killing them or chasing them out? Fairness is, the myth of fairness is one of the things that I love attacking because it is so easy to do. If you consider having a range of taxes paid only by Christians, to be fair, if you consider that a non-Muslim could not give testimony in court, to be fair, if you consider a non-Muslim not being allowed to carry arms or to ride a horse, to be fair, then the Ottoman Empire was quite fair. If you consider that when uh, the first Turkic state was established in Anatolia in 1071, we're talking 100, 150,000 people. When you consider that Muslims did not become a majority of the population in the Ottoman Empire until the very late 1500s, so well after a, more, more than 100 years after Constantinople fell, so 200 years plus after the Ottoman Empire was even founded, Muslims were still a minority. Had it, had it suddenly by, by the end of the 1800s, so 300 years later, two-thirds of the population is Muslim and one-third is Christian. And birth rate is nothing to do with it. How, how did the mythology, as you say, of fairness and equity and multiculturalism under the Ottoman Empire start to emanate? Because it's something that we kind of take casually. And Greeks are non-Greeks. There's this sort of fan, you say a myth, that somehow the Ottoman Empire was fair. When, why did this develop? When did this develop, do you think? This is really a post-genocide um, phenomenon coming particularly from the former political left. Personally, I think that the, 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 the description of left and right are antiquated. They, they do not express the modern world. But in a period that we're talking about, so the 20th century, they very much did fit this dichotomy. Uh, one, to explain the catastrophic defeat of the Asia Minor campaign in 1922, the loss of literally half of historic Elas, the historic ter territories that we lived on, and to build um, a national identity within the, the new Hellenic Eladikokratos, within the new country, the new state of Greece, as it formed by in the 1920s, having to assimilate people who were considered alienists, but who themselves called themselves the Romni or did not speak Greek at all, like the ones from Cappadocia. A lot of the ones from Eastern Thrace did not speak Greek at all. They spoke Turkish or Ottoman to be more exact. Uh, the Pondians who spoke their own dialect completely, and I love reminding my Pondian friends of this, that 
They only became Pondians when they became when they came to Greece. When they were in Pondos, they were Rum. They weren't Yunnan. They were Rum. Explain for our listeners Romi and Rum. What, what Romi is that part of the old Byzantine Roman Empire? We'll become Rome, we've become Romans. Is that what you're saying? That's exactly it. It's it's a corruption. It's a corruption of Roman, which in the medieval period is someone who was Christian and Greek speaking. And Rum is the Turkish version of Romnios. So again, it goes back to the word Roman. Mm. Um, Byzantine, that's a whole conversation by itself, sure. is an English invention, mm. specifically English. Um, and I hate using the phrase. What, why, what, do you, what do you hate? Let me, let me hold you there for one minute. It's interesting you say that because there's been a kind of a very strong anti-Byzantine in British historical narrative that's only changed by Julius Norwich and others in more recent years. Yeah, yeah in the last 20 years. Why was this anti-Byzantine British-based and Franco-British view that somehow Greece died after the Romans came in and that was the it and the Byzantium never... Why, 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 why did that happen? Consider at the time, the Middle Ages, which as we were taught in school, was the Dark Ages. Okay. Uh, it was dark in Western Europe. The centres of Western Europe, Paris, was an overgrown Horyo, a village on an island in the Seine River, as is beautifully shown by the um, the series Vikings. Well, the Vikings, correct. Uh, season three, if I remember correctly. Um, London was uh, even smaller than that. Frankfurt uh, was nothing. These major today major centers of power had mud in the streets. I mean, all we're going to do is read the descriptions by people like Chaucer, who lived in the, at that time in these places. At that time, Cosenopoli, Thessaloniki, even smaller cities like Yanina, where my family's from, had paved streets, running water, guttering, street lighting. Something like we would, what we would call a police force, but you know, that's, that's stretching it a bit. Um, at the same time, as uh, animal crap was being thrown into the streets uh, of London and the plague was rampaging, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, a lot of that anti-medieval Eastern Roman Empire rhetoric from Anglo-French historians is to shift. It is to fit their own political view that they are the inheritors of the glories of Greece and Rome, not these now debased little dark people, swarthy people living on the fringes of Europe. Mm. It's funny. Yeah, look, I, I've, I've run this line many times, and, and I think it's fascinating. And it would come back to some contemporary issues about colour and all that and some anxieties that we have as Greeks about whether we're Asian or Western or white or not white. And I guess that's all tied up into that, isn't Completely. it? Completely. Say one of your discussions, for example, the Anglophilic or pro-British Republicans wanted to, you know, sort of, we wanted to be the British side, the Italian side, and then you've got the Eastern side. And in many ways, I've always argued, correct me if I'm wrong, and you'd know better, Part of our own self-loathing or anxieties about what colour we are stems from that discussion, doesn't it? Completely. It comes out of the the whole issue of colour and race. And by the way, both are Western inventions of the 1700s, of the scientific resolution, revolution. 
before that there was no you were defined whether it was in the eastern roman empire in western europe the ottoman empire you were defined by what church where you worshiped it's fascinating that in the discussion of current post-colonial discussions and i've had these arguments before we never place the ottoman empire or the caliphates or the mongol empire in the colonial precinct colonialism as far as modern post-modern discussion starts with britain and france Am I correct in that? I mean, they were colonial empires, were they not? Oh, com- completely correct. Completely correct. For me, the most effective colonialists are the Arabs. Mm. Explain. Explain. Go further on it. The, the Arabs were a group of desert tribes in what we now call Saudi Arabia until the Muslim expansion of the 7th and 8th centuries. That is when they took over what we call the Muslim world today literally by conquest, and over the centuries, very effectively eliminated, I mean, completely wiped out, almost all traces of the local cultures. Egypt spoke Egyptian. You, except for a handful of Coptic priests and monks and nuns and clergy, nobody speaks Egyptian anymore. They all speak Arabic. The language used in the Coptic church is the closest we have to what we call hieroglyphics or ancient Egyptian. It's a similar relationship they have to what we have with ancient Greek. Right? You've got Berber in countries like Algeria and Morocco, right? which is the native languages of North Africa, but they're not Arab. You go across, the only ones that successfully resisted this are the Iranians, which our people call Persians. Right, so the Iranian six Persians, that's right. So the Persians basically successfully stopped the colonialization process of the Arabs at that time. Because they had their own imperial tradition. So they, they adopted Islam, but they did not absorb Arab culture. They retained their own and their own language. And a lot that a lot of that's to do with religious differences within Islam. So the, the split between the Sunni and the Shia. A lot of people like you and others are discussing this stuff on a broader level. But currently, in this broader debate about colonization, etc., it's very hard to get these facts through, isn't it? Because, no, because the, it is so dominated by self-hating Western uh, um, historians, particularly historians, but also political scientists who want to lay the blame for all of the ills of Africa, Asia, the Middle East, everywhere, at the feet of colonialism and absolve the fact that the colonial enterprise only worked with cooperation of a significant segment of the local population. And the Ottoman Empire was no different. In Greek, in, in slang Greek, we call them rayades or the yenitsari. Yenitsari is one of the very very interesting words, which is a Turkish phrase which has come into Greek, rather than like Rum, which is went from Latin to Greek to Turkish. This one's this one's a straight Turkish phrase, Yenitsari, new troops, which in Greek has become Yenitsari, it's become a single word, and it's used as an insult even today. Which are the genocides in, in in English, of course, the genocides. Is that right? In English, it became the Janissaries. Yes, the Janissaries, the 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 shock troops of the Ottoman Empire, who were all Christian, 
Do you think that the narrative currently, the narrative about post-colonialism will be changed through the work that you and others are doing? Because there seems to be a debate. You know, prima facie, we'll accept post-colonialism as the natural order of things, but do you think there'll be a challenge to that academically? Do you think that's something that will change in time? Everything changes in time. I hope that we will re-examine this I really wish there was an English phrase for it. In Greek, we say ethnomy um, The ones that want to eliminate, to wipe out anything to do with national identity or nationalism or um, ethnic, ethnic identity, it's really hard to translate into English. Uh, mostly on the far left, politically, ideologically. But this is this. But this is one thing that we need to understand as historians. History is the most political science that exists. We are all looking at the past. We are trying to recreate the past. The bad historian will impose his values of, let's say, 2020 on 1920 and say, look at the bad colonialists. For the, the, the classic example being the British in, um, in the Middle East the British and the French in the Middle East. And instead of doing what we should be doing, which is trying to, as much as humanly possible, remove our 2020 mentality and try and look at the events at the time with their glasses, the way they saw it, which is, let's be honest, impossible. It's, it's fascinating. My father, being a next communist, passed away now, but a next communist, he would always have this dream of a Soviet socialist Balkan republics. And I saw some of the stuff that you're writing here. And coming from Patra, we had no conceptualization of anything existing beyond Patra up north. You know, it was, yes, we should all be all one Soviet socialist republics, but of course we're from Patra, we're Greeks. Right? So, so it was an interesting dichotomy in that left-wing thinking, isn't there? Oh, very much so. One of the poster boys of the, the Greek political left, especially in the 1900s, which is where your father would have grown up and developed his, his ideas, was, was Rigas Fereos, classic, all right, who was from the north, well, the centre-north anyway, from Thessalia, um, and that's why he's from the town of, he's from near the town of Feres, which is why he adopted the name Fereos. It wasn't his actual... Um, family name, but his concept of this commonwealth, this federation of Southeast European states had one binding element, sorry, two binding elements, but really one, the Greek language. In his famous poem, he actually says, you Albanians, Bulgarians, Serbians, whatever the hell you are, get ready to join this new great super state and all learn Greek. Greek would become the lingua franca. You're more than welcome to retain your own national languages. But the language of commerce, of politics, of converse would become Greek. And following it through to its natural conclusion, over two, three hundred years, the other languages would die out. And we've seen that with Greece itself. How many people in Greece speak Vlachika? How many people in Greece speak Arvanitika? These are all unique languages in their own right. 
very much influenced by Greek. And there's a debate about, I'm not a linguist, but debates around are they actually dialects of Greek or dialects of Albanian or dialects of Romanian or whatever it is. This is more politics coming into it. But so if an example, if I asked you from Patra, what do you um, know or what do you think is the word badalo? What does that mean? Or to call someone badalos? No idea. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you have the foggiest. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's unique to Yanina. It's a, it's an insult. Basically, it's an idiot, a simple, a simple-minded person. Uh, but I've asked around. Nobody outside the Yanina area has even heard of the word, and and these local dialects, sadly, they're almost gone. It seems like a national project, a bit like what Israel did, a bit like what Greece. It's a, it's a, it's a national project, isn't it? It's a kind of creating a modern Greece, creating a modern Israel, creating modern Italy. It's all their own national projects, aren't they? Of course they are. We're, we're in the middle of one right now, and we barely even talk about it. Australia. We are one of the youngest cultures and one, youngest countries. Can, can we actually agree on what is Australian? Beyond English-speaking... You're Sydney. It's funny, your Premier uh, and others have discussed the idea of changing the national anthem to from young and free yep. to united and free. Is that something you're interested th- Does that make it a better thing? Because we've got ancient Aboriginal cultures, also diverse. We've got us, everyone here. We haven't decided. So it's a national project, isn't it, really, this sort of stuff? Of course, and, and it's constantly changing. This, 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 is, this is a problem I have with people who call themselves conservatives. You cannot stop change. You can influence the way we change. You can influence how we change. But you cannot stop change. Cultures that stop changing die. And language is the best example. If language is not used, if words are not used... They die. They stop being, that's it. They die. They're gone. They end up in the history books. I was going to say that I've always espoused the thesis that if you speak Greek, you're Greek. doesn't matter what, doesn't matter what color you are, what ethnic, religious gender or religious background you have. Speaking Greek would make you to Greek. Is that a bit naive? That's the ancient Greek attitude. Ancient Greeks had no concept of birth. They had no concept of bloodlines. The ancient world, the world pre-1700s, had no concept of what we would call blood or ethnicity or race. These are all 1700s, 18th century and onwards concepts. If you were, who was a varvaros? Who was a barbarian for the ancient Greeks? The one who spoke bar, 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 bar. Someone who quite correctly, like you just said, who could not speak Greek without an accent. If you could speak Greek clearly without an accent, in other words, if you didn't sound like a sheep bang, bar, 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 then you weren't a barbarian. You were Hellenist. I want to take you forward a few hundred years. I've read something really fascinating here, and I want us to discuss it before we close off, and I think these discussions have gone for a long time. I didn't know that seven young Greek men came to Australia, 1829, as convicts for pirating 
a Maltese ship, the Alceste, which Alcest, which was actually a British vessel. But you're saying that they were actually revolutionaries against the Ottoman Empire. Am I correct in that? You are quite correct in that. And I'm not the only one who says so. The defence attorneys, uh, the lawyers they had at their trial on Malta, so if any Maltese people hear it, this is where the Maltese come into the story. There's a Maltese angle everywhere. Um, the trial was actually in Valletta in, on Malta. Uh, the defence attorneys actually played that line, that these people are fighting, these seven, the, the crew of this one ship, the Iraklis, and I love that the ship they attacked was the Alkisti, both out of Greek mythology. It's hilarious. Um, so there's a Greek angle with everything and not Windex and not my Greek flag be wearing it. See, but really, there actually is a Greek angle everywhere. Um, and also the, the newly formed Greek state. So Greek state is formed in 1830. The government was petitioning the British government for the seven to be returned to Greece because the Greek state considered them palikaria, Greek or Siena, freedom fighters. And this is where I draw my conclusion from, from the documentary evidence from 1828 to 1835, the, the correspondence between the two governments, as well as the, the trial papers. The names were Antonis Manolis, Yamanos Ninis, Gikas Vulgaris, Yorgos Vasilikis, Konstantinos Strubulis, Nikolaos Papandreou, and Yorgos Laritsos. They, you say, became ensconced in Australian society, and their relatives or their, you know, their future generations still live among us in different names. Is that correct? One of them. Uh, there, there were seven. They lived here for a little bit less than eight years. Um, five elected to go home when they had the opportunity, five elected to go home, two elected to stay in Australia. One of them, Yikas Vulgaris, left indeed. When he died, he had different sources, but uh, at least nine children and at least 50 grandchildren. Hmm. So his descendants are scattered all over New South Wales, all over Australia, all over the world. Uh, Andonis Tumanoli, I'll correct you, it's Andonis Tumanoli. Right. It's very curious that he's the, he's the one without a family name. I find that very curious. Was he? Did he do it on purpose or did he literally not have a family name? Don't know. But when you look at his, uh, the announcement of his pardon in the Sydney newspaper, it's Andoni, capital T-U, Tu, Manoli. Only when he became, exactly, only when he settled here, when he decided, okay, I'm going to live in Australia, stuff it, I've got, he, he gets married, he buys some land, etc., etc. Only then does he adopt the surname Man, uh, Manolis as a surname. It was actually his father's name. Can I ask, can we try, can we find relations of theirs currently living in Australia? Can, are you able to identify who's related to them? Um, the late Ambassador Gilchrist already did that. In his book, Australians and Greeks, Volume 1, in the back you'll find family charts, uh, a family history, um, family tree, sorry, 
a family tree of Yikas Vulgaris, a couple of generations down, okay, the book is now almost 30 years old, but from there you can also find uh, other descendants. There are hundreds. I had the opportunity to bump into one completely by accident um, while I was at Macquarie University for a couple of years back in the 90s. It turns out the Catholic chaplain of Macquarie University, a young man back then, uh, probably about the same age as I am now, about, you know, uh, late 40s, um, was one of Yikos's descendants. And he knew about, you know, great, 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 whatever, granddad uh, was this Greek pirate, blah, blah. And I just, my, my jaw fell on the floor. This conversation was 1998. Uh, and it was like, you can't be serious. He goes, yeah, yeah, I'm from over there. You, you also talk a lot about uh, the anti-Hellenic rights of 1916 in Sydney and I guess probably in Western Australia. Just for our listeners, put a little bit of context for that for us. 1916, we're, we're the middle of World War One. Uh, John Yanakis over in Perth is actually the, the, the specialist on this one. Um, it's the middle of World War One. Greece was split. Uh, Greece had the popular sentiment was with the British and the Allies, represented by Venizelos. But the king and a minority of the population, the monarchists, wanted some sort of unification of Greece with the Austro-Hungarian Empire and with Germany, by extension, simply because the Queen of Greece was the sister of the Kaiser of Germany. So... He's not going to against. He's not going to go against his brother-in-law. This was published in the. This was discussed in the newspapers here in the media at the time, and Greeks got the reputation of being anti-British. So these drunk young sailors, young soldiers in um, in Sydney, and these hard, rough and tough um, miners out in Western Australia, uh, just started attacking. Went on a rampage down through the streets looting and burning uh, anything, any chops that they identified as being Greek. You've got to remember, 1916, this is the slaughterhouse of the Somme. A million men died just on the British side in six months. This is the, the classic trench warfare that we know of from the film 1917 last year uh, in Sydney. It's compulsory to study World War One. I. I know in, in Melbourne it's not. In Victoria it's not. That's just one of Victoria's problems. Um, the lack of historical education in Victoria is atrocious. That's my stab at Victoria for now. I'll save the other ones for next time. Um, humi- the humiliation of the loss of Gallipoli. I'm still stunned that I have students, teenagers, that believe that we actually won at Gallipoli yeah. uh, and, and it's just yeah it's just it's beyond beyond belief with Gallipoli it's it's interesting and you know given the current where we are and all that it's become also mythology hasn't it when I was growing up on 58 it was a day of remembrance and very somber and we knew it was a loss we knew it as a loss after 1997 possibly at the point the watershed being John Howard government it soon became a celebratory victory uh, a blooding of uh, Australian identity. And I found that interesting. It wasn't until Keating up until that point was trying to make Kokoda trail the blooding of Amer- of Australian identity. 
rather than Gallipoli because we all knew that we lost. Now it's almost like this heroic victory and we had nothing but loss there, wasn't it, really? It was. It was a disaster from day one. I don't know if you've, I don't know if you've been to the uh, War Memorial in Canberra, the Australian War Memorial. I have. Which is Australia's number one tourist attraction. It's, it's way ahead of any theme park or any beach or anything else. It is by far the, the most visited um, institution in the country. The centerpiece, the heart of it, is the skeleton of a soldier from World War I interred there by the Keating government in 93, not from Gallipoli. It was from the Western Front. And they deliberately chose one from the Western Front because Keating hated this concept, this mythology around, and hates, he's still alive, and he still rants about it every Anzac Day, um, this mythology that has developed. And the number one reason for this mythology is not John Howard, he's number two reason, it's Peter Weir's film Gallipoli. Peter Weir's film, which mythologized the entire campaign, which romanticized especially the heroic death at the end of the hero, spoiler alert, for anybody who hasn't seen a film that is now 40 years old. Where are we now? You as a historian and a thinker, where is Hellas, as as you call it, or Greece, located conceptually, ideologically, particularly in terms of its relationship with its neighbours, Israel, Egypt, Cyprus, Turkey? Where do you see it? You just said it. I believe that the, the current government is finally relocating, realigning Elas, Greece, where it should be. It's a Mediterranean power. It's a Southern European power. But it's neither East nor West. We don't need to be either East or West. We are both. And it's about time that we become comfortable with that we are both. So... It's really, it's, it's amazing that it's the natural gas. It, it, it's something as mundane as energy resources that is, is bringing the Greek focus back to where, it's always, it, where it was in antiquity and where it was in the medieval period, which is Thalassa, the sea. I'm from the mountains. My, my family, the, the nearest coast is over 100 kilometres away. Um, but the sea is where our people have always been. You think about it, in the days before the Ignatia Odos and the Ionia Odos, the two main um, expressways in, in Greece, the basic way to get around was by sea. This is why all, our, all the major cities, all the colonies that the ancients set up were on sea trade routes, on islands. It wasn't just defence and resources. It's also trade, transport. Australia is another classic example. Exactly. Look, I want to continue this discussion in maybe number two, three, four, and five, and six versions of the Panayoti Photos discussion. I really thoroughly enjoyed it. I'm really happy you located us between East and West because I've always argued that. And I want to say thank you again and goodbye and leave you an opportunity to come sign off with whatever you wish in terms of sign off on the cave you're in the cave you can say whatever you like and we can say goodbye to each other i'll quote the oyenis uh it sounds like the cave is where we all hold up a lamp and we're looking for someone who's honest thank you panagioti 
Thank you very much. Talk to you very soon again. You've been listening to The Cave, brought to you by Neos Cosmos. I'm Fotis Kapitopoulos. Our producer is Ben Cardwell. And don't forget to go to neoscosmos.com for more episodes of The Cave and that Hellenic perspective.